Father God, we know you speak to us through your word, the Bible. Lord, as we open it up now, please speak to us by it. Lord, transform us, renew us, give us life as we hear from you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever received the cold shoulder? It's when someone's going out of their way to be unwelcoming, unfriendly, and cold. It feels like every time you go to say g'day, they turn their back and shut you out. Now, sometimes when it happens, it's totally unprovoked. Other times, you know exactly what's going on. A couple of years ago, I started a job, and in the first few days, I made a joke at the expense of a far more senior member of staff. It got a laugh, but as soon as I said it, I knew I'd made a mistake. She was not impressed. I tried to apologise, but the damage had been done. She never forgave me, and she effectively shut me out of the team. That was the cold shoulder, and there was nothing I could do about it. Now, I don't think that's a particularly unique experience. I'm sure all of us, at some point or another, have said or done something to someone, maybe even inadvertently, but that's it. The person's walls go up and you shut out. You know you're going to have to earn it before they warm up to you again. But I wonder if you've ever given somebody the cold shoulder. Maybe you didn't get an invite to a wedding. Maybe someone took the credit for something you did at work. Maybe someone just simply cut you out of a conversation and you feel yourself immediately go cold toward that person. You know it's going to be hard to get back to the way things were. If we're so quick to shut people out over something as petty as a wedding invite, how much more when the offence is actually serious? This is the culture we live in, isn't it? A culture where forgiveness is hard to come by and where if you put a foot out of line, you're cancelled. Because, in our experience, forgiveness is so hard to come by, we can make the mistake of assuming that God is like us, thinking that he's slow to forgive and he's really going to make us earn it which can make us slow to come to him when we need forgiveness and slow to offer forgiveness to others who haven't earned it. Jonah 3 is a reminder that God is not like us at all. He's not slow to forgive at all because God is a compassionate God who wants to save people. So as we turn to Jonah 3, the first thing that we see is that Jonah is sent to Nineveh again. That's in verses 1 to 4. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, it says in verse 1. That in itself is pretty astounding and a demonstration of God's compassion. Jonah's already received God's word once back in chapter 1 and he made a decision. He said, Nope, 
when I receive a note from someone, especially someone who should be doing what I say, like my kids, I'm not coming back and offering second chances. There's going to be trouble. But God's not like me. He is not quick to anger. In his mercy, he sends the message again, and it's an almost identical message to the one he sent in chapter 1. Jonah gets a second chance. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, Jonah does what he should have done the first time. He goes to Nineveh. Now, the message that God gives Jonah to proclaim is pretty heavy. It's pretty dark, really. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's heavy. It's not a particularly pleasant message to have to take. I want you to imagine for a second that God sent you to walk down Elizabeth Street in Hobart, announcing that by the time Easter comes around, Hobart's going to be destroyed. Now, Hobart's not Nineveh, and you don't have the hatred towards Hobart that Jonah had towards Nineveh. But nonetheless, I'm sure you wouldn't be overly excited. And I'm sure you probably wouldn't expect to be received that well. You'd probably expect to be ignored. You might expect to be ridiculed. You could even be arrested. Maybe you'd be gotten for hate speech or something like that. Jonah probably had similar and much worse expectations. But that's not what happens. Something truly astounding happens. And this is the second thing we see in this chapter. Nineveh repents in verses 5 to 9. Look at verse 5 if you've got a Bible there. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Let that sink in for a second. Jonah is a prophet in Nineveh's eyes of a foreign god. This is not a message from a god they know or worship or fear. Jonah is from a foreign nation and not a friendly foreign nation. This is an enemy nation. Nineveh has absolutely no reason to listen to this message. Yet they do. That's astounding. And not only do they listen, they recognize that the message is from God, they believe, and they repent. Now, if you have a look at your Bibles, you're not going to see the word repent in these verses. And it's not really a word that we use that much outside of church circles anymore. But even though the word might not be that familiar, the concept definitely is. To repent is simply to turn, to stop going in the direction you're heading and face the other way. Repentance is the act of turning around. It's less of a physical act, though, and more of a change of attitude. Put it this way, I might never tell my kids to repent, that'd probably be a little bit weird, but I'm constantly telling them to change their attitude. I want them to think about who they are, who I am, what I'm saying, 
and how they're responding to what I'm saying. Really, what I want them to do is repent. Stop being disrespectful and disobedient. Start listening and helping me out. That's what we see in Nineveh. From the greatest to the least. From the beggar on the street all the way up to the king. They've heard the preaching of Jonah. They've recognized who God is. And they've humbled themselves. That's partly what the sackcloth, the ash and the fasting is all about. They've come to see their evil and violent way of life as dishonouring to this great God and worthy of the punishment that's been threatened. Their response is to call out to him for mercy. At the preaching of Jonah, their attitude towards God has changed entirely. From never giving God a second thought, they cry out to him for mercy. As I was reflecting on what's going on here, it struck me how relational repentance is. It's very easy for us to think transactionally when we think about God. We might think, if I confess my sin and repent, then God owes me forgiveness. That's how it works. That's the deal. We're kind of hardwired to think that way. But that's not how repentance works in real life and in real relationships. If you're unfaithful to your spouse and you realise you've done a terrible thing, you'll come to that person and confess and repent. In that situation, you hope you're forgiven, but I don't think there's a person alive who would think they're owed forgiveness in that situation. If forgiveness is to occur, it's totally in the other person's hands. Really, in confessing and repenting, you're acknowledging that you've damaged the relationship by breaking trust and dishonouring your spouse. You're saying you don't want the relationship to end here, though you realise it very rightly should. If you're forgiven, your spouse is saying that they want the relationship to continue as well. If your spouse doesn't forgive, the relationship's over. That's, what Nineveh, that's what's happening in Nineveh. Look at what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. Nineveh recognises that they're not owed anything but are appealing to God and his compassion. It's in God's hands. It's relational. If that's true, if repentance is relational and not transactional, then the Christian life should be marked by repentance because we're in a real relationship with the living God. We've been saved from sin, yes, but we've been saved to a restored relationship. At its core, that's what Jesus' death is all about, paying for the sin that severs our relationship with God. But even though we've been set free from slavery to sin, our battle with sin continues. 
And if you're a Christian, that sin, if, if unconfessed, is damaging to your relationship with God. It creates a barrier between you and God because it's an area of your life you don't want God finding out about. It's something you're hiding from him. If it wasn't, then you'd confess it. Ultimately, unconfessed sin is something you don't trust God with and trust is at the core of an intimate relationship. Any intimate relationship. Unconfessed sin is a barrier to closeness with God. So if you're a Christian, you're going to come to God again and again and again, confessing and repenting. Not because you need to repeat the transaction as if your salvation's been lost, but because you're in a real relationship and you don't want that sin to come between you and your loving Father. But the best part of our relationship with God, and it's different to any other relationship we're in, is that we know for certain that we'll be forgiven no matter what we've done when we come to God for forgiveness. Nineveh didn't have that assurance. Who knows, they said in verse 9. We know because God gave his one and only son that we should not perish but have eternal life. He was willing to give everything to restore our relationship with him, even his own son. We need never fear that he'll withhold his forgiveness and give us the cold shoulder because if we believe in Jesus, our debt's already been paid in full. I don't know if there's a greater joy than being forgiven when you've wronged someone you care about. If you're a Christian, that joy is ours because of Jesus. So come to Jesus quickly and often knowing that he's a loving and compassionate God who will certainly forgive. So we've seen Jonah sent again, and we've seen Nineveh repent in verses 5 to 9. But before we move on to the last verse of the chapter, there's a question we've got to deal with. Why? Why did Nineveh, a city seemingly so far from God, why did they repent on such a massive and unlikely scale? Because God's word is potent. God's word is powerful. There's nothing particularly spectacular or eloquent about the words that Jonah speaks. It's not because Jonah's a great orator that this great repentance happens. I'm sure Jonah didn't deliver the message with any particular grace or compassion or love. Yet this is what God can do. Even with Jonah as a spokesman, if God so chooses, he can even bring about the repentance of an entire city. Do we believe that? We should, and it should fill us with great confidence even with you or I as spokesmen, God can bring about the repentance of whomever he wants. And we've been sent out into the world with a far better message than Jonah had. Jonah had 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
we've got, there's a God who loves this world so much that he sent his one and only son to die for his people so that they might be spared from his wrath, which they've brought upon themselves. If you believe that and repent, you'll be forgiven and welcomed into his family. That's good news. It's the message we've been given, and we get to go out into the world with that message that literally saves lives. We get to go and tell people we know and love that message and experience the joy of seeing them pass from death to life. We get to gather every week as a church and celebrate that good God who saved us, and we have the opportunity to invite people every week to come and join us and hear that same message that saved us. And by God's grace, we'll see them find life as well. We've been given this amazing privilege to get to see people's lives be saved as they hear the good news of Jesus through us. What an opportunity. Now, if you're here today and you haven't experienced that awesome forgiveness and salvation that only Jesus offers, make this the day. Hear the message and respond like Nineveh. Repent. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment you deserve for rejecting God and rose again so that you may have the assurance of forgiveness and the guarantee of new life. If you believe that message and repent, you'll be saved. You'll receive new life. What an opportunity. If you want to talk more about that and what it all means, by all means, come and chat to me after the service. If you can't get me, speak to someone at the welcome desk. Speak to someone and have that joy and assurance today. So the whole city of Nineveh repents as God's powerful word is proclaimed. But there's one more astounding thing that we see in this passage, and it happens in verse 10. God relents. God doesn't bring the destruction on Nineveh that he threatened. He sees that Nineveh's turned from their evil ways, and he relents. He doesn't destroy the city. Why is that astounding? It's astounding because destruction is actually what Nineveh deserves. They are an evil and violent people by their own admission. They've been living in opposition to God and they deserve death. Now to some of us that that might seem a little bit harsh. And I think it's simply because we're not the ones who've been sinned against. If Nineveh's sin was against us, that punishment seems much less harsh. Put it this way, my interest in finding who's stealing the lunches out of the fridge at work greatly intensifies when it's my lunch that's being stolen out of the fridge at work. When we're the ones sinned against, the punishment 
is rarely too harsh. And Nineveh's sin is primarily against God. It's not against Jonah. It's not against Israel. Primarily, Nineveh has sinned against God. God's the offended party. Yet God relents. He doesn't bring the destruction upon Nineveh that he threatened. We probably would. Why doesn't he? Because God is not like us. God is quick to forgive because God wants to save people. He doesn't want to see anyone perish, no matter what they've done. He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. God's desire is to see people saved. And anyone and everyone who believes his word and repents will be forgiven and will be saved from God's coming wrath, just like Nineveh. But it's only those who've believed that message and repented whose punishment Jesus has taken. Sin deserves to be punished. Oh, sorry. Sin deserves to be punished. And for those who haven't yet believed in Jesus, there's a day of judgment coming. And it's coming soon when Jesus returns and the destruction threatened to Nineveh will come upon everyone who hasn't repented. But that's not what God wants. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slow in keeping his promises. That is, his promise that a day of judgment is coming. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And if we've been recipients of God's mercy, so should we. Do we? Of course, the people we know and love, we don't want to see them perish. But what about people we don't know and don't necessarily like? What about people who are very different from us? What about people whose lifestyles we don't agree with or condone? What about people who make us feel uncomfortable or even unsafe? What about people with really messy and dirty lives or people who don't want anything to do with us? Do we want to see them perish? Maybe not. But do we really care if they repent? Maybe we're happy for them repent to repent as long as they do it over there. Do we really care if they perish? If we truly care, we've got to be out there getting our hands dirty, right? We've got to be mixing with people who everyone else avoids. That's what our God did, didn't he? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. God became man in Jesus. He got amongst it. He came down to a sinful world so that people might repent and be saved. If it's got it good enough for Jesus, it's got to be good enough for us. How are people going to come to repentance and experience God's mercy unless we take the message that we've been given to proclaim? It's not someone else's responsibility. It's our responsibility. 
God's put the Kingston Christian Reformed Church here on this hill in the middle of Kingston for a reason. That the people of Kingborough might repent. We're not here for ourselves. We're here to make Jesus known to the people that the people around us, people God has placed around us, might repent and believe. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's an easy task. It's not. It can be scary. At times, it's awkward. We might even experience some social exclusion. But nothing worth doing is ever easy, and the reward is amazing. We get to be involved in God's work of saving people. As people hear the the good news of Jesus through us, we can trust that God will act by his powerful word and he'll save lives as people repent and believe. God's not going to hold back. He's not going to offer the cold shoulder to anyone who cries out to him. And that's because our God is not like us. His mercy and forgiveness come quickly like they did to Nineveh. So let's take that great message that Jesus saves out into Kingbra and and beyond with the assurance that God wants to save people. And he will. Let's pray together. Father, you're an awesome God. Gracious, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Lord God, we pray thanks that you've saved us through Jesus. And Lord, we pray you'll give us hearts that want to take your mercy and your grace to the ends of the earth, to people very different from us, Lord, but who desperately need the same forgiveness we've received. Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.